0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walkie.
1: Will you pray with me? It was almost funny, Holy One, to read the text from the Gospel of Mark today. Almost funny. But it's... Too soon. We thought we had left the arguments about greatness back in 2016, but here the disciples are asking Jesus to assign seats based on greatness. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus' response would have disqualified him from a presidential run. He didn't denigrate anyone to make the disciples feel superior. He didn't talk about how much better the disciples already are than everyone else. He didn't even call anyone any names. Instead, he said, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. He even says that he himself came to serve, which can be translated as waiting table offering food and drink, providing the necessities of life, caring for the poor and the sick. Jesus is telling the disciples to tie on their aprons. Jesus is telling us to tie on our aprons. Will you double knot the strings for us, Holy One? We want to be of good service to others. Or maybe we should say, that we want to be of great service to others. We pray in the name of Jesus, who showed us how. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Esther, chapter one, verses 10 through 22. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty. For she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king consulted the sages who knew the laws, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and custom, and those next to him were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mekuman, the seven officials of Persia and Medea who had access to the king and set first in the kingdom. According to the law... What is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, commanded by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be altered. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, vast as it is, All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the officials, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, declaring that every man should be master in his own house. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The reason this story is often untold and overlooked seems pretty obvious, or should I say sounds pretty obvious, so many of the names in this text are beyond difficult to say. Even Hebrew Bible experts like the Reverend Dr. Lisa Wolf admits that pronunciation is a significant barrier to telling the story. The book begins with a daunting name to pronounce, Ahashvarosh. The Greek version of the king's name is only slightly easier on the tongue, Artaxerxes. Ahashvarosh is the Hebrew version of the Persian name. It's just really easy to get tongue-tied in this passage, and it's just better to keep the preacher's pride intact and avoid the story altogether. But it's not just the challenge of pronunciation. Martin Luther wished that the book of Esther did not exist at all because, he said, it is full of pagan naughtiness. I do not think that Luther anticipated that folks might actually want to read it for that very reason. Esther, the book of Esther, is also an often untold and overlooked story because stories that center women are systematically excluded from the texts preachers are encouraged to preach on. Many mainline Protestant churches, including this one, use the lectionary to shape their worship and preaching most of the time. It provides us with a calendar and offers scriptures for every Sunday and on holy days over a three year cycle. There are usually four suggested texts one from the Hebrew Bible, a psalm, something from the Gospels, and something from one of the epistles or letters in the New Testament. The book of Esther is featured only once. In the Revised Common Lectionary, which means that the story is suggested once every three years. Not surprisingly, the other book of the Bible named after a woman, the Book of Ruth, is featured but twice over that three-year period. The fact is that our scripture is androcentric or male-focused, so of course so is the lectionary that is dependent on it. There is work being done to correct this, though. Dr. Will Gaffney recently cre- crafted a women's lectionary so that it would be easier for us to proclaim the good news through the stories of women who are often on the margins of Scripture. I am delighted to tell you that more than a few of my male colleagues are intentionally switching to Dr. Gaffney's women's lectionary so that they can preach women's stories more often. Having said all of that, people do generally know the story of Esther because, as Dr. Wolf writes, from a rags to riches heroine to the triumphant vindication of an underdog people, the book of Esther contains all the elements we desire in a good story. The book of Esther tells us of how a young orphan girl, on the advice and counsel of her uncle, becomes queen to the king who has conquered her people. Despite the consequence of death, Esther outwits her enemies and the people of Israel are saved from extermination. Though the story is not historically factual, writes Dr. Wolfe, Esther is an utterly truthful tale about the struggles of a people living in diaspora. People very much like to use a version of Uncle Mordecai's inspirational speech to his niece, Esther, from chapter 4. You'll recognize it. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. That's the line most people know, right? For such a time as this. But that's not the selection we read today. Today we read of another queen, the queen before Esther. Few people know of Queen Vashti, even though it is her defiance that sets in motion the events that would pull Esther into the royal court and put her in position to save the Jewish people. The story opens with a banquet said to have lasted 180 days. And when those 180 days were done, the king gave another banquet, this one lasting seven days. Drinking, we are told, was without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials to do as each one desired. Queen Vashti, meanwhile, was hosting a separate party for the women, although no more details about that were given. While it was not uncommon for women and men to feast together in ancient Persia, King Ahashbarosh threw a party that was apparently for men only. As biblical scholar John Levinson notes, the absence of women at King Ahashvarosh's banquets enhances the perception that these were really just overdone stag parties, with all the licentiousness and disrespect the term implies. It hardly seems necessary for the author to tell us in verse 10 that the king's heart is merry with wine by the seventh day. The king is drunk. And this inspires him to command Queen Vashti to appear before him wearing the royal crown in order to show her off. And this is when things fall apart. Because, as we heard, Queen Vashti says, no. There has been much speculation over why Vashti says no. The rabbis suggest that perhaps Vashti is being ordered to appear wearing only the royal crown, and she does not want to do this out of modesty. Quite frankly, given the nature of the festivities, it seems unnecessary to speculate beyond the obvious. I mean, would, would you go to that party? These are the kinds of parties girls and women are regularly advised to avoid. This is how it's always been for women. We have been told that it is our responsibility to avoid situations in which we might get raped or assaulted, as if it is anyone else's fault but the perpetrator's. And so in case no one has told you, assault of any kind including rape, is not, does not happen because of where you are or what you are wearing. Full stop. In any case, the author of the text does not seem especially interested in Queen Vashti's rationale for refusing. We only know that she does indeed say no. She doesn't ask for a rain check. She says, no. This is certainly not just an okay decline of a casual invitation. This is an order of the king that she is refusing. So her no sparks a state crisis. God save the queen. Spoiler alert. God does not save the queen. This actually shouldn't come as a surprise. God never does make an appearance in the book of Esther. We, though, should also note that we don't hear from anyone else on her behalf either. Queen Vashti is on her own. The king is humiliated and enraged. He summons his closest advisors on how to respond, and no less than seven special prosecutors are required to arraign this woman and counsel the king on damage control, as theologian Carol Bechtel writes. One of the advisors turns it into a full-blown national crisis. Queen Vashti's act somehow signals a universal crossroads, a rebellion against the sexual and social order, a violation of the harmony of every home and marriage. A law must be rushed through the legislature to control the women. We know that feeling. The tactics of the patriarchy have not changed at all, it seems. In 2021, more reproductive health care restrictions were enacted across the United States of America than in any previous year. Of the legislation in this story, Carol Bechtel comments that, on the one hand, it is a brilliant stroke of psychology. By interpreting Vashti's defiance as a crime against everyone in the empire, he deftly deflects the focus from the king. Suddenly, the king is no longer the only man who is humiliated. Every man in the realm is potentially vulnerable. On the other hand, it's fairly obvious that there is more than diplomacy at work here. The nervous prediction of copycat crimes in every household reflects real male insecurity. Judging from the enthusiasm with which his proposals are lapped up by both the king and the officials, one gets the impression that they are genuinely frightened. Or as Margaret Atwood said, men are afraid women will laugh at them, women are afraid men will kill them. Chapter 1 ends with the king rushing to the post office. To get there before it closes, he's got to get, make sure the word gets out. As for Queen Vashti, we never learn her fate. Some Midrashic interpretations suggest she was formally executed. Others propose that she was killed by King Ahasuerus in a drunken rage. There are almost no suggestions that she met a happy fate. And and wouldn't that be nice to imagine that she was allowed to just go and live her life? But apparently, it was too far outside the realm of possibility for anyone to even imagine that Queen Vashti was anything but banished and imprisoned, or more likely, put to death. Perhaps Queen Vashti's story is overlooked and untold because we cannot tie it up in a nice, pretty bow. Or maybe it is because we are too distracted by the so-called Cinderella story of Esther. I mean, that really is one of the only reasons Queen Vashti is ever mentioned at all. There would never be a Queen Esther but for Queen Vashti's refusal. But we forget what Esther was forced to do in order to be, quote, royal dignity for such a time as this. One of the reasons Esther is not a children's story is because it involves a whole harem of exploited women. Although it's often taught in Sunday school as if it were really just a harmless beauty pageant with the onstage question weighted more heavily than usual. To overlook Queen Vashti is tragic for a number of reasons, including that she seems to be a model for living into her refusal with grace, exhibiting independence and strength in her solitary righteousness. She stood alone. She insisted that no is a complete sentence. We could use a few more examples like this for our daily living, in everything from saying no so that we don't over-schedule ourselves, to saying no to participating in systems of injustice for even one more moment. We need more stories of people who are true to themselves, models of integrity. Indeed, her courage alone is sermon enough. But perhaps it is also a tragedy to leave Queen Vashti's story untold because we missed the opportunity to imagine how this story might have ended differently if someone, anyone, had stood with her. If God is never mentioned in any direct way in this text, it tells us something about our role and responsibility to stand with those who are standing alone. God works through the everyday faithfulness of the beloved community. So instead of God save the queen, it should be let's save the queen. May this be the story they tell about us. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.